We probably could just take the rest of our time singing that song. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. One of the questions that I've, I've asked people throughout the years is you have to ask yourself, is our world inherently good with flickers of bad, or is it inherently bad with flickers of good? And the way I would say that the Bible would answer that question is after the fall of mankind, our world is innately, inherently bad. We deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve separation from God. We, we are bad. We are sinful people. And when you look at the world, yes, I would say there are flickers of good, but the flickers of good come from a good, good God. And he's not done with the world. So when you, when you sing that song, your goodness is running after, it's running after me, that's when you can look at your life just maybe this past week, this past day, this morning, and you can look at your house, you can look at your car, you can look at the restaurant you ate at last night, and I had chicken parm, and it was really good. And you can look at all of the good things, and that is the goodness of God running after you. See, what happens in our world is that we think our world is inherently good with flickers of bad, and all we need is like an Oprah or a self-help book, and it can kind of help us through the bad. No, no, we need the flickers of good, which is the presence of God at work in the world running after us. So hopefully the next time you sing that song, When you're singing, your goodness is running after, it's running after me, you might think of every good thing that you have in life comes from the Father above. Well, welcome, TVC. It is so good to be with you. My name is Josh Laxton. What I just said just a few moments ago, that's all free. That's not even part of the message, so you are welcome. But it is so good for you to be connecting with us online. Let's just give it up for those of our friends and family connecting with us online. Uh, know that you are loved. Uh, you are loved here as well. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We are in this series, The Upper Room Discourse. Now, we are inching our way to the finish line. We're inching our way. We're not done. We're not, we, we've not crossed the finish line. We will in a couple of weeks. But it's been interesting, this series, because the, the, the bulk of the series has been focusing on Jesus horizontally teaching his disciples. Now, last week, we made this slight shift, and now Jesus, he continues the discourse But this discourse now is vertical, and he is conversing with the Father. Now, I think there are some some introductory kind of points that I want to make before I kind of dive into the main body, because this is an important shift, okay? And here's why it's important. 
Because Jesus has taught his disciples about what's coming. He's taught his disciples about he's going back to the Father. He's taught his disciples how to serve. He's taught his disciples that they're going to face opposition in the world. He has taught them about the Christian life. He's taught them doctrines and theologies of the Christian life. And then he makes this shift vertically and he's going to go to the father and he's going to converse with the father things that he has just told his disciples. So Jesus teaches this divine information of what it means to live out the Christian life, what they can expect in following Jesus. But then he prays for God's divine intervention, and it's going to be God's divine intervention that brings about transformation. Now, can I just be as bold as to say this? I think one of the major problems with Christianity in America is that we think we can live out the Christian life on our own. And we tend to over, and, and, and rightly so, but we, we emphasize right doctrine. And we need to emphasize right doctrine. But what we put on the back burner is prayer. And what we see here is that Jesus, he ties orthodoxy and orthopraxy to the vertical conversation with the Father. So if you want to live out the Christian life, you have got to be connected to the intimacy of the Father. Now, one of the things Joni and I, we have tried to instill in our kids as they have aged is that they cannot do what the Bible asks them to do. So instead of just saying, now you need to share your PlayStation with your brother. Like we, we, don't, we, we say, you need to ask Jesus for a heart to want to share your PlayStation with your brother. You don't, need to, you don't need to hit your sister because we don't hit girls. Because one of the reasons is Ellie just knocked them, knocked them out. I mean, that's just one. But, but what, we want to, what we want to instill in our kids is that instead of just don't hit your sister because we don't hit girls, would you pray to Jesus that he would give you a heart to love your sister? Uh, we, 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 we want you to be kind and encouraging to your teammates. So don't, don't say anything negative to them. We don't just tell them that. We ask them to ask Jesus that Jesus might give them kind and encouraging words because on their own, they cannot be moral enough. And so what Jesus is teaching us with this high priestly prayer now is that if you're going to live out the Christian life, you've got to go to God. You've got to go to the Father. Now, here's what's also interesting. This prayer is more about, God, about asking God to intervene and give us what we need to live out our calling as followers of Jesus. Why? Because life is war. Now, but don't miss this. Uh, you know, John Piper, he talks about prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie, not room service. Now, and I agree with John Piper. Life is war. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. Now, this is, so, this is so good, though. What Jesus has just told his disciples is that I've won the war. Like, I, I've won the war. 
But what I've just gave you and what I'm going to the Father and asking him for is that you win the battles. See, we live in light of victory. See, that's what Jesus is teaching. Hey, I'm I'm going to prepare a place. I'm going back to the Father. I am going back victorious, conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. But you're going to have battles. You're going to have troubles in this world. And if you're going to win the battles, if you're going to win the battles of your mind, if you're going to win the battles of your heart, if you're going to win the battles of your marriage, if you're going to win the battles when it comes to idolatry, you're going to have to go to the commander and chief and tell him what you need to win the battles not hey i I need room service uh you you know i love some i I, i'd love some cheesecake right now god i mean no no that's not prayer so all of those are introductory notes about this prayer now we're going to get to the main point you ready for the main point say i'm ready Here's the main point of those of you who are connecting with us online. Jesus' prayer for his disciples reveals God's purposes for his people. Now, don't miss that. Because what we will see this morning in verses 6 through 19 is that Jesus' prayer for his disciples reveals God's purposes for his people. Because what we will see this morning... In Jesus' prayer to the Father is God's mission for us. So with that in mind, would you stand as we read John 17? And we're going to read a few verses, and then we're going to dive into the main body this morning. And just so that you know, here's how I define God's mission. is that God is on mission to redeem a people from all peoples on planet Earth to reflect his glory in all spheres of life. That's God's mission. God's mission is to create a people, a people from all peoples, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group on planet earth to reflect his glory, to reflect his characteristics, his nature, his attributes in all spheres of life. That's God's mission. We will see that actually unfold in Jesus' prayer. So here we go, verse 6. I have revealed You to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you. I'm coming home. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one in the world. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As you, this, this is one of my favorite verses here. As, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Let's pray, Jesus, through the proclaiming of your word, I pray that you would shape and mold your followers more into your image, crafting them more into the new creation. Father, for those that are far from you, that may be seeking this morning, either here, online, I pray, Spirit, that you would draw them to yourself, that they might see God's heart for them. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we learn three things 
from Jesus' prayer for his disciples that reveal God's purposes. Number one, we learn that God wants to save a people for himself. God wants to save a people for himself. Now, let me show you a few things under this point. First, we learn why the disciples can even be saved. Now, again, verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying for basically the 11 disciples. But there's a lot that we can learn in his prayer for the disciples. And the first thing that we learn is why they can even be saved, why we can even be saved. We see that in verse 6 and 9. I have revealed you to those you gave me. You gave them to me, for they are yours. Now, remember, again, Jesus is talking to the Father, and he's told them, hey, he's told the Father, I've done what you asked me. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me. That means the Father had chosen these men for salvation, and that Jesus went on mission to declare to them and reveal to them the Father. Now, just who are the eleven again? Now, remember, Judas Iscariot, he's off betraying Jesus. But the 11, Peter, James, John, Andrew, uh, Nathaniel, Bartholomew, uh, uh, James the Lesser, uh, Judas, Jude, Matthew, Philip, Simon the Zealot, Thomas. And when you look at the 11, you see fishermen, you see tax collector, you see a, a zealot. And to many of the others, we don't even know much about them. They're just ordinary men. In other words, there's nothing special about these men. It's not that they had degrees. It's not that they were Pharisees. It's not that they were the religious elite. These are common, ordinary men. And it's not that they went on Jesus' doorstep and said, "Uh, Jesus, I hear you're putting together a band of brothers. We'd love to join it. It's not that they uh, interviewed for an internship with Jesus. No, they did not seek after Jesus. Jesus sought after them. Uh, Jesus elsewhere says, I've chosen you. You've not chosen me. They were approached by Jesus and said, come, follow me. You see, it's in these couple of verses that we learn why we can even be saved. God is on mission to create a people for himself. God is the pursuer. We are the pursued. God reveals himself. He makes himself known. Uh, The Bible teaches no one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God, no, not one. I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve, in a perfect garden, they chose to rebel against God. Do you, think, do you think any human being coming after Adam and Eve are going to reverse the trend? No. So that's why maybe you're, look, you know, you're listening online. Maybe you're here and you're seeking, you're searching. Let me tell you who prompted that search. Let me tell you who prompted you to seek out him. That's God. God prompted you through the Holy Spirit because that's what Jesus taught us in the, in the upper room discourse. Is I'm going to send the Spirit to convict the world of sin. So the reason why people would even be searching for God is because the Spirit of God is at work in the world drawing men and women, boys and girls, to the Father. There's a lot that I wish I could say on that, but here's what I would say. One of the things that has just revolutionized the way I see God is the fact that God loved me and chose me. Because if we think that we chose God, we think we're in authority over God because we did something. And so to know that I couldn't do anything in and of myself, but yet the goodness, the holiness, which we'll get in a second, of God pursued me in, in my state and drew me to himself. Oh, my gosh, I'll give you my life. That's, that's what we just saying, right? 
The, the second thing that we learn in these verses is how you are saved. How the disciples were saved. Uh, we see in verse 6b, Jesus prays to the Father, You gave them to me, and they have what? Obeyed your word. I gave them the words you gave me, and they what? Accepted them. Now, surely this would include things like repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It would also include what Jesus taught them, the only way to God is through me. Uh, Surely it also included when Jesus would say, come and follow me. And so these men did that. These men heard the words of Jesus and they responded. They accepted the words of Jesus. Now in verse 8, Jesus also prays, They knew with certainty that I came from you and believed that you sent me. Now when I, when I hear Jesus pray that, I'm reminded of Matthew 16. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter said, well, well, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you know what Jesus responds to Peter and says? Behold, Simon, son of Jonah, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. In other words, the Father was working through Jesus and the words and the signs that he was performing to draw his disciples to the conclusion that Jesus was the Christ. And so just so that we are clear, how are we saved? How are the disciples saved? They repent and they have a change of heart. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Guys, you were walking this way. In darkness, I need you to repent, and I need you to turn, and I need you to start following me as the king. I need you to start following me as the Savior. And as you repent, you will receive and believe on Jesus and his words. That's how you are saved. That's how you are saved. You you listen to the words. You, You hear the words. You read the words of Jesus and By his words, you repent because we are sinners and he's come to save sinners and you receive and believe on his words that he is the savior, he is the king, and you are his followers. That's how you are saved. Now, the third thing that I want you to see under this point is, uh, and this is fun too, what happens when you are saved? And that's a great question, and you guys are on top of it this morning. So what happens? I mean, we see this in the prayer. What happens when you are saved? Well, guess what? You belong to God. You belong to God. Uh, Did did you notice uh, all of these possessive pronouns? Yours, the the ones that you gave me, that these disciples are God's. The Father possesses them. You become his. And just so that we all are on the same page, you you do realize that from Genesis to Revelation, God has always wanted a people for himself. Started out in the garden. We see it in Israel. But at the very end in Revelation 21, we read, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people And God himself will be with them and be their God. God 
wants you to belong to him. He wants to possess you as his treasured possession. Unbelievable. But then here's another thing that happens when you come to know Jesus. You have a share in the family name, the name of God. What does Jesus say? Protect them by the power of your what? Name. Now, what's in the name of God? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, God actually reveals himself in many names. Let me just give you some of them. Elohim, creator. El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. El Elyon, God Most High. Yahweh, Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my banner. Jehovah Ra, the Lord my shepherd. I like that. Everybody say Ra. Ra, yeah. I mean, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Jehovah Jireh, God my provider. Jehovah Sitkanu, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Those are just some of the names of God. And so when you follow Jesus and you become possessed by God that he is, that he sees you as his treasured possession, you are now grafted into the family name and all of those names you have at your disposal. But don't miss this though. Catch what Jesus says next. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you what? Gave me. Now, (laughs) what name did he give Jesus? Oh, well, that that was the name he gave him. So what name did he give him? Jesus. The answer is always Jesus, right? So what name did God give him? Jesus. Now, we know at that name, According to Paul, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it is Jesus, the Hebrew name is Yeshua, which means God saves. But it's going to be in Jesus, Yeshua, God saves, that all of the names of God that I just mentioned are wrapped up in Jesus. Because it's going to be Jesus that brings about new creation. It's Jesus that there's not a mountain too big he cannot climb, an ocean too deep that he cannot traverse. There's nothing too big that Jesus cannot overcome. He is Lord God Almighty. Jesus is transcendent, yet he is imminent to to the brokenhearted. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is king. Jesus is my strength and my shield. Jesus is my good shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me into peace. He refreshes my soul. He cares for me. He guides for me for his, for, for his name's sake. There is no sickness that Jesus cannot cure. There is no disease that he cannot heal. There is no death that he cannot overcome. He is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. There's nowhere that we can run where Jesus isn't there. If we ascend on the wings of success, he is there. If we fall into the lowest valley, he is there. He is Jehovah Shammah. In Jesus, God rights wrongs. In Jesus, he reverses the curse. In Jesus, there is institution, institute of justice, and he redeems a sinner. He is the God who saves. That's Jesus. Amen. And just so that we know, there's no one that Jesus cannot save. You might be thinking to yourself, well, you just don't know who I am. Well, Jesus does. And yet, he came to save you and to bring you into the family where you have those names of God that you have one God 
and his name on your life. And so when you're saved, you become part of a new family, the family of God. And look at what he prays. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. Why? Why? So that they may be one as we are one. Everything about the name of God, his character, who he is, now is wrapped up in this new family of diverse people, of every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group. They are one in this new family. And that is a desire at Wheaton Bible, Tri-Village, that we would be a multi-ethne, a multi-ethnic church because God is on mission to create a, a, an ethne, an ethic. So what he's, what he's doing is that God, he is creating one people from all peoples to bring them under the family name of God. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, it gets even better. You're like, it gets better? Oh yeah, it gets better. Number two, God wants to sanctify a people for himself. Not only does he want to save a people for himself, but he wants to sanctify a people for himself. Now, we see this in verse, verses 17 and 19. Jesus praying, he says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Well, what is Jesus asking the Father? Well, the word sanctify means to set apart, to consecrate, to be holy. Now, don't miss this. Throughout Israel's history, there were many things that God sanctified, that he set apart, that he consecrated, that he made holy. One was the people, the Israelites. And on many occasions, he had told them to consecrate themselves, to set them apart, to set them apart as holy his, to be holy, to prepare themselves to meet with God. Exodus 19 would be one place before they go into the promised land. And Joshua is another place, so that's one. A sanctuary, the tabernacle and temple, was to be consecrated, to be made holy. And then within even the tabernacle and temple, there was this room called the Holy of Holies that was sanctified, that was set apart, that was holy, because that's where the presence of God dwelt. And then we have the firstborn, or the first fruits that Israel was to offer God. So they were to set aside every firstborn, animal, and child to be holy gods. They were to offer up their first fruits, to consecrate, to set apart their best to give to God. And then we have altars and animals. So when offering sacrifices to God, they were to set apart their best. They could not offer any sacrifice that had blemish, that was uh, defected. So if you had a lamb that had a broken leg, don't, don't give that to God. You can nurse that lamb, eat that lamb if you wanted to, but don't you sacrifice it to God. It had a defect, right? Then priests, they were to be consecrated because these priests, they would serve they would serve God on behalf of the people. So they act as mediators between God and the people. So they had to be consecrated. So how does Jesus propose God sanctify the disciples? Well, two ways. The word. So sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So one of the ways that we are set apart, one of the ways that we are made holy is by the word. Well, 
That's Jesus' teachings. That's the reason why Jesus would send the Spirit, because he calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth, who will teach his disciples all things. Now, one of the things that I love about this imagery of Jesus' word, how did God bring about creation? Through his word. How is he going to bring about new creation? Through his word. So he is going to make us holy. He's going to set us apart. He's going to consecrate us by his word. Now, then we see that Jesus, don't miss this, Jesus himself is going to be the way that we are also sanctified. Now, this is pretty, this is pretty cool. Think about it this way. Jesus was the better Israel. Jesus was the temple of God, the very dwelling place of God. Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1.15. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, holy and without blemish, untainted. Jesus was the ultimate high priest who entered the cosmic holy of holies that mediated between God and the world. And Jesus says that he sanctifies himself so that they might be truly sanctified. What is Jesus teaching? Here's what he is literally teaching his disciples and us 2,000 years later. That Jesus sets himself apart from the Father so that his disciples could be set apart for the Father. Because Jesus was who he was. What he decides on his own. The Father doesn't make him. The Father doesn't force him. But what he has willingly done is that he says, Father, I'll, I'll, I'll separate myself from you for the world. And I will become the perfect sacrifice to die for the sin of the world. Because what Jesus is describing to his disciples is his sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross for the sin of the world. The way that you and I can be truly set apart for God. The way you and I can be truly made holy for God. It's not anything in and of ourselves. It's not because we are good moral people living in America. It's because Jesus, over 2,000 years ago, he He walked a perfect life because he was the God-man. And he went upon a cross. And there he died. He shed his blood. He died in our place for a holy God because a holy God has to deal with sin. And he dealt with sin through Jesus. Come here, though. This is so cool. In light of what Jesus did in his death, In his resurrection, according to the teachings of the New Testament, Christians are now set apart and holy. They're the holy people of God. Christians are the temple of God, the the, the people where the presence of God dwells. Christians are the first fruits of salvation. James 1.18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Christians are called to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Christians are to mediate, to serve in a priestly capacity between God and the world. As Peter says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
So now it's in the church where Jesus' word is being proclaimed and taught so that we will not only set apart ourselves as wholly his, W-H-O-L-L-Y, but so that we can be holy in the midst of an unholy world. And through Jesus' word, he's crafting and he's shaping us and he's molding us into the people of God so that we might reflect the rule and reign of God to a world that is in desperate need of redemption. So why is Jesus praying for the Father to sanctify his disciples? That's a fascinating question and a great question, which leads me to number three. Number three, God not only wants to save a people for himself, God not only wants to sanctify a people for himself, but God wants to send a people for himself. Verses 15 and 18 My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I'm not going to remove them from the world. Why? Because as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So, you know, people, well, when when you get saved, why don't he just... You know, swoop you into heaven like 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 you did Elijah. You, you know, like you, you you repent, you come to Jesus, you'll swoop. Well, who's going to tell others about Jesus, about the Father's love for them? Well, see, uh, Jesus, he came to seek and to save that which was lost, and as he gets ready to go back to the Father. He's going to send his followers, send his disciples to finish the task of God's mission. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. The word sent is the word apostolo, which means to depart for a particular purpose. In Latin, uh, the word for sent is missio. It's where we get our word mission. This is why I have a PhD in missiology, the theology of mission. So missio means to send. And so throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation, God is a sending God. He is sending people out on mission. And the crescendo of his missio, his mission, is the son to seek and to save that which was lost. And so if Jesus says to the Father, as you have sent me into the world, I'm praying that you would send them into the world, it would only beg to question, how did the Father send Jesus into the world? And so there's four, I would say, elements to Jesus' sentness that can apply to us. And let me go through them really quick. And this is my wheelhouse. I love talking about mission. Number one is motivational. It's motivational. Jesus is sent on mission, and there's this motivation behind it. What is the motivation? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. There's this motivation that Jesus had, that the Father loves the world, and if I love the Father, I'm going to love the world. And as I am sent into the world, I'm going to love the world. That's the reason why Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians, for Christ's love compels us. It compels us. It's this motivating factor for mission. God has loved me. He's loved the world. And so now I am sent in this posture 
of love. So it's motivational. Second, it's incarnational. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love the way Eugene Peterson states it in the message. The word became flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. And so if we're going to be sent like Jesus, now obviously we, uh, we are the presence of God in the world. We are the body of Christ. We are where Christ has decided to dwell, where the presence of God dwells on planet earth with his church. And so we move into the neighborhood of our communities. We don't separate ourselves from the world. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. And it's part of this incarnational presence, meaning that we're going to have proximity to our neighbors. We're going to have proximity to our coworkers. We're going to identify with them. And we're going to try to understand those around us. And we're going to seek to be an embodying presence of God and his glory. Let me just say it this way. You cannot reach a world that you are not in. The further the church, listen to this principle, the further the church is from the intersection of people's lives, the harder it will be to touch the intrinsic needs of the heart. See, the reason why Jesus was able to reach a world is because he pitched his entire life in the middle of the world. So that's the reason Christians do not retreat into little Christian enclaves and bubbles. The world's going to continue to get darker. It's always been dark. I don't even think it can get even darker. It's always been dark. So we don't try to remove ourselves. We are the light, the incarnational presence of God. The third element of Jesus' is sentness, attractional. Now, this is why I love this word, because this word has gotten a lot of bad press over the last couple of decades, because people think of attractional as these attractional churches with all of the bells and whistles attracting people to the church building. That is not how I'm using it, and it is not the way God has ever intended it to be. Nothing wrong with the bells and whistles, but that's not attractional. John 18, 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. So when you looked at Jesus, Jesus lived out this new kingdom reality. It was the inbreaking of the kingdom of God among the kingdom of man. So when you listened to his words, the words were from the kingdom of God. When you saw his signs, when you saw his wonders, those were elements of the kingdom of God. It's in the kingdom of God there is a level playing field. It's in the kingdom of God there is no poor. It's in the kingdom of God there is no sick. There's in the kingdom of God life is abundant and forever. So when you looked at Jesus and and his ministry, you saw the inbreaking of the kingdom of God on planet earth. Now, what does it mean for disciples to live attractional lives? Well, again, if you go back to, now here's the thing, if you even go back to Israel, the entire law and the commands of God were meant for the Israelites to live out God's kingdom there among the nations of the world, that they might be a light to the nations. And so then you get to Jesus' ministry, and as he lives out the kingdom of God, it's in all spheres. It's relationally, it's personally, it's socially, it's familially, it's maritally, vocationally, financially, recreationally, culturally. 
So how we live out God's kingdom is we love neighbor, we love God, we love our enemies, we pray for those who persecute us, we have a clean mouth, we practice confession, we're honest, we're truthful, we're full of integrity, we are kind, we're gentle, we're encouraging, we seek to be pure in our relationships, we have a loyalty to the kingdom of God, not to a political ideology, not to a political party, we seek unity and diversity, we are hospitable and we practice table fellowship, even with those that we might not even otherwise enjoy a meal with. We care for the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable. We are committed to the people of God. We don't forsake the gathering of the saints. We live a life of service to the glory of God and the good of others. We leverage our gifts and our abilities and our cultural platforms in a manner that glorifies God for the good of others. We find where the fabric of the community and city in which we live has been torn by the effects of sin and we seek to be a gospel healing presence there. We strive to be faithful in our marriage, committed in our marriage, sacrificed in our marriage. We train our children in the ways of the Lord. We steward our resources in a way that honors God. We're generous of our time and our talents and our treasures. Why? Because that is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the here and now. Here's a principle. When you live set apart for the glory and mission of God, your life becomes a window by which the world can peer in and see the inbreaking kingdom of God. The way I like to say it is the church is a movie trailer of the full movie to come. And I think what happens today in our world is that the world looks at the church and they're like, I don't want that movie. I won't see that movie. I won't see that movie. But if we embody and enact the embreaking kingdom of God, people will want to be part of that movie. That's the attraction. That's the attraction. The last element to the way the Father sent the Son is invitational. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who eats me will never hunger. I am the light of the world. He who looks to me will never live in darkness. I am the door for the sheep. He who comes into my pasture will find abundant life. I am the good shepherd. He who comes to me will be known by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who wants a home in heaven with God needs to come through me. I am the true vine. He who wants to live a life of vitality and fruitfulness cannot do it apart from me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Rest, that is an invitation. Listen to this, please, please, church, please listen to this. Attraction without invitation is giving people a ticket to kingdom entertainment, but never inviting them to become part of the kingdom cast. And this is the danger that churches throughout history has always faced. They don't mind the embracing, embodying the embracing of the kingdom of God and doing those things to bring healing and flourishing to the world, but they neglect invitation. And if you're going to be sent, if I'm going to be sent, if we as a church at Tri-Village and Wheaton Bible, if we are going to live sent lives, we cannot neglect invitation. We have to invite people to repent of their sin, to place their faith and trust in King Jesus, the Savior of the world, and allow them this, this opportunity to come into a relationship with God, into a relationship with Jesus, into the kingdom. So let us be 
invitational people so that they might experience the most fulfilling and satisfying and forgiving relationship that they could ever, ever know. So as I close, here's how I will define God's mission, uh, not only based upon this prayer, but obviously the entirety of Scripture. The church exists to glorify God by participating in the mission of God, which is redeeming a people for himself from all peoples by sharing and showing the gospel of King Jesus in the power of the Spirit. That is the mission of the church, and this is what Jesus is praying for. So, it's in his high priestly prayer for his disciples that reveals God's purposes for his people. That's your purpose. That's my purpose, to be saved, to be sanctified, and to be sent, just as he did the disciples 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent the Son. Jesus, thank you for your willingness, your obedience with joy to come, to be our sacrifice, our substitution, to take the wrath of God onto yourself so that we might not have to taste God's wrath. Spirit, thank you for your work in the world and how you have moved and that you have drawn us to yourself. As we live sent, as we live sanctified lives, as your people, Spirit, will you empower us for this kingdom life that you have called us into. And may through our life, may, may through our motivation and attraction, may through our incarnation and may through our invitation, many, many, many men, women, boys, and girls, maybe may many of them come to faith, come to saving faith in Jesus. For it's in your name we pray, our King. Amen.